huge text to read through, and I hope that I hope it won't be too boring or too difficult to deal with, but it's what's lined up. I hope you had good lunch, good food, good spiritual food today. And this is about Stephen, Stephen's sermon. Stephen was seemingly extremely intelligent. He was full of the Spirit, the text says, to the extent that the people that opposed him uh, couldn't stand up against his wisdom. That's what we read in the previous um, lesson. And the, the title of that lesson was When Zeal Clashes with Truth because there were some people that weren't from Jerusalem. They were from other places in the world, but they were in Jerusalem at this time. And they were extremely zealous for the uh, Jewish faith. Um, I think even more so than the people in Jerusalem who lived there. Because they come from dif- distant places, they felt, you know, this is incredible being in Jerusalem. You know, they were, and then they arrived there and Stephen, this guy, is standing there and he preaches against the temple. And, and they don't know how to deal with that. And so they produce false witnesses and they drag Stephen before the Sanhedrin. And there's a trial that's going to develop over there. That's sort of what we dealt with last time. And the last verse we dealt with is verse 15 of chapter 6 that says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So you can imagine this, these 75-odd guys, the great leaders of Israel, they are sitting there in this arena. I don't know what it looked like, maybe like our, I don't know, the councils, I don't know what the the house of representatives look like when they sit. And, but it's something like that. And Stephen is in the middle here. You can imagine this guy standing there full of confidence and, and humility. And, um, and, and that's where the text closes off. Okay, what now? It's like everybody's quiet and just looking at him. How do we deal with this guy? Well, in chapter 7, the silence is broken because it says there, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? So the high priest, obviously he's the leader guy. He's like, okay, awkward. It's a bit quiet in here. Um, Let me ask a question to get the ball um, rolling. The question then is this, about the question. Are these charges true? What are the charges? Well, you've got to go read the previous verses. I'm going to give it to you so you don't have to go battle to find it. But basically, the charges they brought to him was this. They said, well, this guy, Stephen, he's blaspheming God. And also Moses. That's one of the things. Jesus is against Moses and he's against God. And he's saying things about God and Moses. That's a problem. And he says, based, just remember this morning's lesson. I hope you guys can remember. What was Jesus crucified for? He was crucified for saying that he will destroy the temple. And rebuild it in three days. That's exactly the same thing that happens here. If you go back and you read it. They said, he said, this guy, Jesus, will destroy this place in other words, the temple okay, and the law of Moses. This is the problem that they had with him. And it's understandable, right? You can imagine you're a Jew in the first century and somebody comes and says the temple means nothing. Or says, well, the law of Moses is really um, obsolete. It's, it's not that important anymore. That's the charges. Okay. Which are reasonable, wouldn't you say? It's reasonable. Okay. Now, verse 2 to this he replied, and here we go. Stephen's in a way like me. He speaks too much, but he launches a huge sermon. And tonight we're going to read through it. 
together. And I'll, I'll pause as, as we go. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will, I will show you. What do we pick up here, first of all? Just, I'm just going to make comments as, as we go. He starts way, way back before Moses. He goes all the way back to Abraham. And what does he call them? He calls them brothers and fathers. What does that tell you? He's basically saying, hey guys, we're on the same team. We have the same forefathers. You are my brothers. I love you. Some of you can be my fathers. So that illustrates to you he's coming to them with respect. I think we can, we can see that. So deep respect and uh, camaraderie in a sense there. Verse 4. Continue to explain the story. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, uh, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. What is he talking about there, ladies and gentlemen? Egypt, right, yes. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. What's difficult to deal with these types of sermons is you've got to figure out, okay, but why does he answer the high priest in this way? First, he, he, he's going to answer the question, right? And then secondly, he establishes just um, commonality and saying you're brothers and, and fathers. And then he starts back with Abraham. And I think up to verse 8 now, he's, he's sort of just illustrated to us the earliest um, identity establishment of uh, the Jewish faith. He's saying, well, this is where the Jewish faith started. It started with Abraham, and he talks about circumcision. He talks about the promised land, right, which is a unique Jew, Jew thing. And he talks about the descendants of Abraham who would, who would um, be the product of this, um, this promise um, that God made to Abraham. And he talks about the 12 tribes. And then he inserts something interesting in there. He inserts in this whole explanation the prophecy made to Abraham. And the prophecy is this that they will be enslaved for 400 years. Okay. Hopefully that will come up again. Well, it does. Verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his brother Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem, and placed in the tomb that Abraham had, had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill His promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. 
He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Now, in the previous verses, when he spoke about Abraham, he gave a prophecy. Right? Stephen is giving a prophecy. He says, remember this. This was a prophecy given to Abraham that his descendants would suffer for 400 years under a foreign ruler. Now in verses 9 to 19, he explains just that process. Are you with me? Stephen, I think, is illustrating to us here that when God says something will happen, it's going to happen. When there's a prophecy made by somebody that we respect, which is Abraham, you can watch in history how God fulfilled this prophecy. Now this is very important. He's saying to them, Remember, you guys agree. Up to this point, do you think that they agree with him with everything he said? Of course they do. You have to. It's what the scripture says. Abraham received through the Holy Spirit the prophecy that for 400 years they would suffer in Egypt. And then he explains, look, but they did. So what God says he will do, he will do. All right, we're on the same page. Now into the guy the whole debate is about. Verse 20. At that time, Moses was born... And he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. That's actually a very powerful verse there. As to, I think that's why God used him. Verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, and so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Wow, God's people in the past were amazing. They killed people just like that. Goodness gracious. Verse 25, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon uh, two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This, now, let's just pause for a moment. He's introduced Abraham. He's introduced Moses. He's made a prophecy about what's going to happen in Israel, in, in Egypt. And he has shown how that has happened. And now he's showing to us how God raised up somebody to liberate the people in Egypt. And right through the story, you see one character that's invisible. It's the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit of God worked through Abraham. The Spirit of God worked through Moses. 
to deliver God's people. Keep that in mind. Now, we see verse 35 and 36. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God Himself through the angel who appeared to Him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. So this person that God chose to lead the Israelites were the person that was rejected um, by the people. The person that God accepted, the people rejected. This is a theme that you see throughout his lesson or his talk here. The person the people would not listen to, God allowed him to walk on holy ground. Um, the Egyptian killer became the Jewish savior. Now, up to this point, do you think the Sanhedrin agrees with everything that Stephen is saying? Yes, I think so. I definitely think so. I think Stephen is doing a good job. I think he's explaining everything nicely from the beginning. He is showing how Moses is the Savior, right? He saved the Israelites from, from Egypt. He's doing a good job. He was called by God. And these Jews, they believe that Moses is special, right? Yes, they did. Okay. Um, I think Stephen is taking into account who he's talking to here. He's building a nice rapport, and he uses facts and, and, and things that these Jewish guys would agree with to gradually ease them into this point in the story. At this point, they agree about everything, including the fact that God really appeared to Moses. Verse 37 and 38. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Do you get what's... Now there comes a little twist in the tale. You guys agree Moses is great? You guys agree God spoke through Moses? You guys agree that Moses saved the Israelites, right? You, you guys, you really like Moses? You agree with Moses? You see him as your prince, your prophet? If all your hopes and dreams are hanging on Moses? Okay, well, since you guys like Moses this much, listen to what he said. He said, there's going to come a prophet sent by God after him. It's a text that he brings up, which is actually found. We're going to read that now. In, in a moment's time. He was in the assembly in the wilderness, verse 38, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And listen to this. He received living words to pass on to us. So the words that Moses received at Mount Sinai were living words directly from God. There were angels involved. It's a huge ordeal. And these guys, you guys, you must agree with me. You can imagine in the Sanhedrin, he's explaining this. All right. He takes a, a turn away from the general story here, um, and he goes and he quotes this text. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. And here's the key. You must listen to him. This is what Stephen is referring to. And I think he's brilliant because he, he builds this whole case from Abraham all the way up to Moses. You guys agree with me? Okay. Do what he says. And Moses said that somebody will come. Who's that person? We know who he is. 
And then the text says, listen to him, which is interesting. Anyways, everybody awake? You with me? Okay, verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed, reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. Did you ever know that the Israelites worshipped the sun, moon, and stars? I've got to be honest with you, I missed this somewhere. When they worshipped the calf and in the wilderness, there were times that they worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars, the Israelites. This agrees. And then, and then Stephen is clever. He, he he, he puts his foundation for this fact in a scripture because it's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel, you have taken up the tabernacle of Molech, which is a God they worship in a way of sacrificing their children to, and the star of your God, Rifan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile into beyond Babylon. So in these verses... I think Stephen is showing them, okay, your ancestors, let's just, let's just think about this. You agree with me about Moses, you agree with me in, about history. The people that were in the wilderness, they actually rejected what Moses said, okay, and they worshipped pagan gods. They rejected the man who encountered God, who did amazing miracles, and the man who gave the law. It's almost like they are saying, you guys see Moses as a perfect prophet. That everybody, everybody reveres him. But the people who walked with him in his time didn't. They rejected him. We're going to come back to this. Verse 44 to 50. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Now here's a trickery coming up here, verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? I just got the text in Isaiah there for us, just to read it again. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? What are you picking up with this? It is not significant. And look what Stephen is doing. He's going back to Scripture. I mean, do you really think God lives in this house? Come on, guys. Where will my resting place be? Has not my, my uh, hand made all these things? God's hand makes trees and bricks and stuff. Rocks. He doesn't live in it. He makes it. Now, I think he's saying to them, here, hey, you guys make a bigger fuss of the temple than you should. You make such a big fuss of it. Moses... Listen to what he's saying. Go read the text again. But he's saying this. Moses let God live in a tent, guys, in the wilderness. 
God lived in a tent and traveled with the Israelites. It was dirty and stinking. They never worshipped the tent. It was just a, a place where the Ark of the Covenant would operate in, according to the pattern that God showed Moses. So that's the first thing that he says in this text. Then secondly, he says, look at where does the temple come from? Where does the idea of a temple come from? It comes from the mind of who? David. Then he says, hey, this was in David's mind. You guys worship the temple and make the temple so perfect and holy as if this was from God. This isn't from God. This was David's idea. And David didn't even build it himself. Yes, we respect him. But it was actually his son who built this place. And thirdly, I mean, look at the scripture. So first, God lived in a tent. Secondly, the temple is an idea of man. And thirdly, God doesn't actually live in it. Sorry, guys. You know. So why are you so offended when I say the place is potentially going to be destroyed? Do you really actually, are you so silly that you reject Isaiah the prophet and you actually think that God is in this physical place? Oh, that's going to hurt God's feelings. So, what has he said or how has he answered their question up to this point? Let's just recap. This is what I see. We're going to read the conclusion now, but just, just to bring it in a bit. I think Stephen is showing them that God has kept his promises right through the story. His promises and his predictions he kept right through the story. Stephen is pointing that out. Why? Because Moses had a prediction, a promise, and a prophecy. And what was that? That there's going to come a prophet after him. And so if God keeps his word about the 400 years of captivity, for example then surely God's going to keep His word about this new prophet that's going to come onto the scene. He's trying to illustrate and show them in history how faithful God is when He says stuff is going to happen. Therefore, it's going to happen. So don't be so blind and so stupid to think that Jesus is not the prophet that Moses spoke about or that the Holy Spirit spoke through, through Moses. So um, the prophet is Jesus, but you don't believe it. You don't accept Jesus. Just like the Exodus people didn't accept Moses. He puts them in the same boat. You have a tendency to reject contemporary prophets. Oh, and you make a big fuss of a temple that God did not make a big fuss about. And he grounds his argument in Scripture. And then he concludes. Now, up to this point, I mean, Stephen has got the face of an angel, right? We see it perfectly illustrated here. He's so nice, brothers and fathers. I mean, he goes to Abraham. and the, He tells the story so nicely. What do you guys think? He does, right? Such a nice, pleasant, kind guy. But that seems to change in the last three verses, which basically sends him to his death. You stiff-necked people. <laughs> Dude, calm down. Just calm down. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now we understand why he spoke so much about the ancestors. He was drawing a link, a line, between what the forefathers did and what they do. Stiff-necked. You know where that comes from? I didn't know this, but I had to go read up on it. It's when a cow carries a yoke. You know, the yoke has to break in on the neck of a cow, and the, the neck is literally stiff. He refuses to bend to the will of the yoke. You can go nowhere with this cow. Stiff-necked. 
It's going one direction. You can't change anything about it. So he says to them, you are stiff-necked people. You don't listen or absorb God's word well. You are selective in what you obey. And you've already chosen what you obey. You oppose what God says. You are just like the Israelites in the wilderness. Nothing has changed. You treat Jesus filled with the same spirit as Moses, just like the Israelites treated Moses. You are no better than the Israelites who died in the wilderness. And then he says to them, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. That's pretty straightforward. Well done, bro. Manasseh led the charge to kill Isaiah. They say Isaiah was cut in two. What do we know Isaiah for? He spoke most prophetically about Jesus Christ. Their ancestors killed Isaiah. So what, what, what Stephen is saying is true. Your forefathers killed the prophet that spoke, and now you kill the prophet he actually spoke about. Verse 53, you have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. You brag about Moses, 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 Moses. Oh, don't speak against Moses. You brag about the law, the law, the law, the law. But you don't even obey the law yourself. And you don't believe the prophecies that Moses said. Moses said somebody, okay, you don't even believe that. You are a hypocrite. You are double-minded. And, and then he says, God spoke through angels. That was interesting. I found this text, Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands of angels. The Lord has come from Sinai into the sanctuary. The reference here is that they say, what, what the psalmist is saying, that there were thousands upon thousands of angels at Sinai that participated in the rumbling and the thundering and the fire and the smoke. They were there bringing about this whole environment, this atmosphere that brought about the law. The presence of God through His angelic beings was on the mountain. And then he says, this is what Moses said, but you reject the guy. Okay. Are we okay? Five minutes. So what can we take from this? What do we, what do we learn from this? Well, there's, there's, there's a few things that just come to my mind and something on your mind. Please feel free to put up your hand. The three aspects I just want to look at as we close off. The first thing is, we see here in Stephen, because he was filled with the Spirit, right? And he had wisdom. We see how he approaches this task of speaking the truth that will probably hurt the people who listen. How do you do that? Have you ever been in a situation like that, where you have to speak the truth to somebody, and you know it's going to potentially hurt them? What process do you follow? What are some of the key things you can learn about how to do that? What I pick up often is that we, um, we rather avoid speaking, which is not a good idea at all. You remember the proverb, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I hope you get that, but if you continually blow kisses to somebody, oh, you cried, everything's fine, everything's fine, you're actually the person's enemy. But a wound from a friend can be trusted. So if you really care about somebody, you'll be honest with them. But how do you do that? So here's a few things. First, wait for God to provide the opportunity to speak truth. Sometimes we rush into it. 
Wait, let God give you that opportunity. That's what I think happened here with Stephen. He didn't force himself into the Sanhedrin. He was placed in front of the Sanhedrin. And God gave him an opportunity to speak. Sometimes it works like this. You end up sitting next to the person somewhere in an awkward situation and it just gives the right opportunity for the conversation to take place. So there needs to be prayer in this. If there's somebody that you feel need to hear the truth, you need to pray about it. And God will give you the opportunity to speak about it. Secondly, do not keep quiet when you have an opportunity. We've already spoken about this. Sometimes we are filled with, we are cowards. That's what it is. We're cowards. People need to hear the truth, but we won't speak to them. So we'd rather keep quiet. We have a prime opportunity to say, hey man, I think you're wrong here. I think you hurt me here. I think you need to fix this. If you have an opportunity, speak. Number three, establish common ground and connection. Stephen did that well in his first address, brothers and fathers. And then the whole story that he spoke about, it's like, look, we have this in common. And then fourthly, make your claim clearly and simply. Be simple and clear so that people understand. Sometimes we beat around the bush. We don't say it as it is. In a nice way. And people walk away and it's like, I've got no idea what you just said. But okay, I'll repent. It doesn't work that way. Number five, use scripture to back up your statements. Don't go talk to people about something you want to correct or they need to learn or whatever, but you can't base it on scripture. Scripture, what we think and say and our opinions mean nothing if it's not backed up by scripture. Look at what Stephen does. He goes back to the psalm. He goes back to Isaiah and he says, this is why I say what I say. It's in the text. Some people will reject that. They won't like that. And then lastly, speak the truth sensitively. And sometimes, if needed, boldly. Sometimes, you're going to say, hey man, my brother, you, you know, you, you're hurting me when you say that. That's a very soft and gentle way. But sometimes people don't listen to that. It's like, hey man, you're acting like a godless person. And you need to change your heart. Sometimes you have to talk like that to people because they don't listen. Look at what Stephen does. I'm not saying we need to walk around and be like Stephen and, and, and Jesus. Maybe sometimes we, need, we must. You brood of vipers. You stiff-necked rod. Maybe if you want to use harsh lingo, use his lingo. Because people today use harsher words than that. Alright, so that's what I think I, I pick up... Um, just about a process that he follows. Not necessarily a process, but some principles we pick up with him on how he deals with speaking the truth to, to people. But then there are some thoughts from the story. Two things that intrigue me. First of all, walking in God's will won't guarantee the ideal life that you envisioned. In other words, just because you follow God and you, you are a Christian and you're his disciple, that your life is going to turn out the way that you thought. It doesn't necessarily work that way. Like, for example, maybe you envision, well, I'm a servant of God. Um, divorce will never come across my path, for example. Or just because, uh, you know, my, my spouse is never going to die at a younger age. Or I will never develop cancer. Or I won't end up living in a town that I never wanted to live in. Or um, I, will, I won't have a, a struggle for money. Um, you, you, those things aren't a guarantee when you follow Christ. And you know what, why I say that? It's because if you go read that story again, which is a neat story about just the history of Israel, I'm going to point out some things to you there. Um, Abraham left his home 
and went and lived in an alien land. Well, that's probably not how he envisioned his life. But since he started following God, he had to go be an alien somewhere. Joseph becomes a slave in a foreign land. Well, that's also probably not ideal. I don't think we hope for that. A drought hits Canaan, and God's people have no food. Actual fact, the text says that they were suffering extremely. God's people be without food? Yeah, that could definitely happen. Israel is oppressed as a nation in a foreign land in Egypt. Israelite babies were killed. How do you feel about that? Hey, I'm a servant of God. Okay, your, your baby's being killed tomorrow. Moses lived in the wilderness for 40 years. David so badly wanted to build a temple for God. Do you think that he had good intentions? Of course he had. No, you're not going to build a temple. Doesn't care. You, know, you think that's ideal? Well, no. Um, the one thing he desired, and he couldn't do that. If you go read the story, it's not a perfect life following God as we see it. Number two, every generation respects past prophets more than contemporary prophets. That seems to be the case. Um, they would die for the law of Moses, but kill Jesus. It's like, the guy's doing miracles, better than, than, than Moses ever did, but you want to kill him. And then you look back and you're like, worship Moses, law of Moses, those bad Israelites. Let me tell you this, if you lived in the days that they lived, you probably would have wanted to kill Moses as well and worshiping the calf as well. Why is it that we make past prophets so holy, but the present ones we reject? This is why we need to focus more on the message than the messenger. Focus on the message more than the messenger. And sometimes it's the same in the church. Oh, that preacher from 50 years ago. He was a good guy. He's the guy that spoke the truth. This new guy, this cat from South Africa, what a weasel. Nonsense is this cat talking. I'm not as good looking as or tall, but uh, judge the message, not the messenger. Do we agree on that? No, I'm just joking. Nobody has done that. But Sometimes we think that our forefathers were much better than um, current servants of Christ. And then general, just two general thoughts. The remedy for Holy Spirit rejection is being a philomath. And you go... <laughs> it doesn't sound right. There's a town, right? Is it Philomath or Philomath? Philomath. Well, I'm going to teach you a new word tonight. Philomath, a Philomath, is a lover of learning and study. That's what it means. Philo, phileo, right? So, the point I'm trying to make here is, these guys, um, the Sanhedrin, they'd made up their minds about what they believed and stood for. They've, they were concretized in their thinking, in their theology, and in their doctrine. They believed that they were unshakable. They're going to learn nothing. They're solid. And in a sense, sometimes we boast in that. I'm immovable. Okay, but what are you immovable on? Are you immovable on what Christ clearly says? Or are you immovable on your personal opinion and convictions about a gray matter? These guys were immovable on a key doctrinal problem. Never mind their, their personal convictions. Their problem was that they were not open to any other ideas or interpretations or perspectives. They had the same text. They knew the text that Stephen was referring to. 
but they read something else into it. And they were unshakable. They weren't willing to open themselves up for that, and that is why they missed Jesus. Now, we always risk this too as well. And I've seen it, unfortunately, in my life quite a few times. A few weeks ago, I preached a, a sermon. It was entitled Cave Syndrome. I don't know if you guys remember that. But it was about reclusiveness and isolation, self-isolation. The problem when you lock yourself up in your house and you don't interact with people is that you miss the, uh, the connections that you can form and, and the love and, and the, the, um, you know, you know, the connection, but also growth. Because when you rub shoulders with other people, it sharpens you. The Bible says, as one man sharpens another, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But what if iron never comes in contact with iron? You never get sharper. You get what I'm saying? So if you decide, well, I'm sharp, sharp, sharp. I don't need to open myself up to any other opinions. You're actually blunt. Because there's no other way to sharpen yourself unless you make contact with other people. Now, on an individual basis, that's the case. But also, on a church level, that's also the case. Sometimes churches have a cave syndrome. They become isolated. Suggesting that our doctrine is pure and perfect. We are solid. We are unshakable. And so we never open ourselves up to test our belief system with others outside. The truth fears no questions. So the church should never fear opening itself up to potentially learn from other people. Unfortunately, it was the case, for example, I'll give you an example in South Africa, uh, and I might have shared this before, but there was a Bible, there's a Bible college that was started by one particular gentleman, and nobody would say it outright, but it is like this. He was like the Pope of the Bible College. Even though the Churches of Christ are autonomous, he was the main guy that started the Bible College. And basically, his views were filtered down into the Bible College. His views was what was taught at the Bible College. And he was never debated on these things. It was just accepted. He's the authority. And he's 100% accurate in his biblical interpretation. And somebody in another city was a doctor, doctoral student, a very intelligent guy, it's Mr. Roger Dixon, very, very good, he writes books the whole time, and he's, at, he's about the same age category as this other guy. And, but because the one was at the Bible college, and he held certain views on certain things, and the other one was in, was in Cape Town, he developed certain views. Um, for example, he had a very organic view of the church, and he said, okay, um, he really believes that the first century church got together in houses. Now, he didn't make a doctrinal fight about it, but he really worked hard on people meeting together in homes in different places where they went, church buildings. And then these house churches would come together. Once. Now, to be honest with you, if we just look at the Bible, just the Bible, he's got a really good point. If you want to take the Bible seriously, that's what. It, there is no such thing as an institutional church in the Bible. But now the guy from the Bible college, he would never allow this guy to come and speak at the lectureships, to have an open discussion about these issues. He just cut him out, and he isolated the Bible college. The Bible college closed itself off to learn from anybody else and assumed we're unshakable, our doctrine is perfect, nobody can teach us anything, our interpretation of the Bible is 100% accurate, and guess what happened? Even today, the college is just going down and down and down. It's just dying. It's just dying. And I'm glad that we are, we are in a church that is not like that. There's a danger in isolation and becoming arrogant 
in your doctrinal correctness. None of us have it all 100% together. We try our best, but we must always be willing to let iron shop and iron and to learn from each other. That was the problem with these guys. They were arrogant and self-righteous. A good way to calibrate your life trajectory is by evaluating your ancestors' life outcomes. We see that throughout the Bible. And that's what Stephen does. He says, look at your ancestors. You're doing the same thing. We forget that one of the most valuable ways we can learn how to live our lives is by looking back at our parents and grandparents and the previous generation. Sometimes we do exactly the same stupid things they did. And there's actually a scripture for that, right? I don't know if I got it up. Romans 15 verse 4. The things written in the past were written for our learning. So through the endurance and the patience of, of Scripture. And the people who have lived before us, we can learn from them. 